Hey, welcome to a Saturday morning edition of Night School. It's about 7.50. It's exactly 7.50, not about 7.50. Why would I say it's about 7.50 when it's exactly 7.50? And I just finished a book this morning, Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. I'm a big fan of Treasure Island, you know, the more well-known of his books, I guess. Kidnap is very... Kidnapped. Kidnap. <laughs> Kidnapped is very well known, too. Uh, but Treasure Island is obviously the most famous young man's adventure novel. Uh, and But I hadn't read Kidnapped before. And I just finished that this morning. And I've been doing a lot of reading the last couple weeks. It being fall, it's a great time to read. It's a great time to wake up early and finish books. Fall fiction... Finishing fall fiction books. Um, and this is going to be something of a recommendation episode, maybe a little discussion, a little book report. A little book report. I read this book called Kidnap. <laughs> uh, but Kidnapped, it, it truly brought a tear to my eye after I was done. I was doing a little reading because it's historical fiction, which I'm a little uncomfortable with. Uh, I have no problem with it. I'm not some history buff who needs everything to be accurate. And what I appreciate is in the preface to the book, Robert Louis Stevenson even says, you know, I have no desire to be accurate. It, it, you know, that's my approach as well to things. You know, I don't mind if I get things wrong. I, I like to be right. I like to get facts right. I'd consider myself a, you know, a fact-oriented person, whatever that means in this day and age. Uh, but I don't mind when I get things wrong, and I don't know, I, sometimes that makes for a better story, and that's different than deliberately lying, but on this show, for example, I don't mind getting things wrong, I don't mind being ignorant. You know, I think thinking about historical fiction, it's more important to tell a good story, especially if you're, uh, you know, open with the fact that you're telling a fictional story, which Kidnapped very much is. But it's based on historical events, and it uses real-life figures. And that's where things get weird for me, where it's like, okay, you wrote in this character who's a real guy, and you have him doing things that he didn't do, even if they may have paralleled things he did or, you know, this or that. It's still, it's a historical account of a real, or it's a, a fictional account of a real person in history. So it's just a little weird. I guess I don't have a problem with it. It's just that I, I kind of try to do some sort of, uh, I don't know, I just try to put the, those pieces together. It's, it's hard to reconcile, I guess. But that said, Kidnapped was incredible. I mean, I would say one of the better books I've ever read, one of the better stories, a true adventure novel, very similar in a lot of ways to, to Treasure Island, but it didn't have any pirates, but it still had you know, a seafaring aspect as well as, it was a sea and land adventure, which I guess Treasure Island is too, and I'll stop comparing them, but there, there was, there's an obvious style to Robert Louis Stevenson, and there's a reason why those two stories complement each other so well. And in fact, my copy of Kidnapped is a, it's actually a split book. It's uh, both Kidnapped and Treasure Island, so those two stories are put together for obvious reasons. Uh, but it did bring a tear to my eye after, afterward because, you know, just all that Scottish history, everything that was done to the Highlanders by uh, the British. And the British, I feel like they get such a pass 
you know, and you know, if you listen to this show since the beginning, I, I make a lot of snide remarks about the British, and I don't truly have any problem with the English. I don't truly have any problem with British people or British culture, but I'm not attracted to it for one, and I feel like it gets a little too much of a pass, a little too much credit in a lot of ways. England gets too much credit, and not enough credit in other ways, not enough credit for the bad. I mean, I, I feel like there's this general forgiveness. It's like, oh, I watch Downton Abbey. I watch Downton Abbey. I just love British humor. I love British humor and culture, and I just, you know, have you seen Downton Abbey? Uh, meanwhile, it's like, these are the people who, you know, this this tyrannical little island, this tyrannical little uh, place, you know, it's it's been responsible for so much good and bad, and I shouldn't get too uh, deep into the anti-British sentiment after I, after saying, I don't really have a problem with the British, meanwhile, I'm just like... I got poison dripping from my tongue here. But yeah, they've been nasty to, you know, Ireland. I mean, I heard that Ireland had uh, rainforests much like the Pacific Northwest has, but the British cut them all down. And, you know, just reading about what was done to the Scottish clans, and not to say the Scottish clans were some perfect system. They were these perfect pagan people. Perfect pagan people. And the the Redcoats came in. And I, I refer to the British even today as the Redcoats. Uh, <laughs> I've got no problem with British people and culture. I just call them by this pejorative term uh, that, that brings to mind all the horrors they've done to tons of people. And I blame slavery, <clears throat> slavery on them as well. I mean, I shouldn't. So, you know, this ancient system of... This ancient inhumane system that goes back to... The beginning of recorded time. I can't blame the British for that. But I do, you know, it's funny how, you know, we talk about American slavery and call it American slavery. Yet, by the time that Americans were actually Americans, by the time, you know, generations had lived in America for long enough for America to form its own identity, a large part of our country was like, let's get rid of slavery. And, you know, there's an economic you know, explanation for that, where, you know, the Industrial Revolution, just various things that were going on, uh, were making slavery less, less functional, you know, in modern society. And of course, you know, people like to say, it was all because we just, it was all humanism. We got rid of slavery just because we decided, oh, we shouldn't chain these people up and make them work and torture them, you know, with, with, you know, it, we like to make it this humanistic argument, but I recommend reading the book Time on the Cross. It's been a while since I've read it, about 12 years. Uh, but it's basically saying that, you know, I don't know, one of the points the book makes is that, you know, the downfall of slavery had more to do with technological changes and there, it was more economically justified by those who opposed it than it was some moralistic stance. And that's pretty evident in the way that black people continued to be treated afterward, even by those who opposed slavery. Uh, but people like to give it this, uh, you know, civil rights, moral sort of platform. But, uh, but I do have to say, you know, like slavery... Yeah, it existed, still existed uh, for 90-something years, 90... 80-something or 90 years, 
after America declared its independence, but for a thousand-upon-thousand-year-old system that had been in place throughout the entire world, that's a pretty good, you know, it, it speaks to America's credit that it only took us 90 years to be like, hey, let's get rid of this awful system that, you know, you know, beyond more than oppresses people. You know, it's a big deal when when oppression is the lightest possible term you can use, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have to say, like, you know, it was brought over by the, col- the, the colonialists. They brought over slavery. So it, once America, enough generations had settled here, you know, we and, and we had declared our independence, that was when slavery fell out. So I blame the British, you know, people who were like, oh, you got to, America was founded on slavery. It was founded by the English and these other, you know, European colonialists. It was like, as soon as America truly had its own identity, we did our best to get rid of it. And not everybody, sure, not everybody. You know, we know that. Uh, But still, I, I feel like the history speaks for itself. So blame the British. That's just what I'm doing here. I, I don't have any problem with the English, but blame them for call them redcoats and blame them for everything. That's what I say. But anyway, this book, uh, kidnapped. <laughs> this, this is about books. I am talking books here. Uh, kidnapped. You know, it's definitely got a pro uh, Highland clan slant. Very. I mean, it's very biased toward them, and as it should be, really. I, I mean. You know, I, I think as it should be, but the story itself, just to get back to that, minus all this weird, uh, all these digressions, uh, the story itself, it's just one of pure adventure, and that's really what I look for in books. You know, you know, I like a level of complexity in what I read and think about, sure, but I also look for just a pure sense of adventure, and that's what this book has. And uh, there, there is psychological, you know, complexity to it. It deals with the idea of, you know, being cheated out of an inheritance, you know, the strange dynamics of blood and family. And, uh, but it's it, ultimately a story of the long route to justice and uh, the many gray areas that exist within that route. And... It's also a story of, you know, bravery and courage, as any true adventure novel should be. Here's an adventure novel, but there are no acts of courage or bravery. (laughs) Uh, Show me that. I feel like that's every story that's coming out these days. Uh, Maybe not, because I don't pay attention. I don't pay enough attention to make that grand declaration. Uh, No stories today have any courage or bravery. No, I don't know. Uh, but this is a story, the long route to justice is one that's interesting to me, because uh, true justice often does take a very long route with many detours, and it doesn't always uh, it doesn't always play out like you want it. I think in this story, you know, the kid, the main guy, David, Dave, he's cheated out of his inheritance by a, a cruel uncle who he previously didn't know, and he sold into slavery, and he doesn't end up becoming a slave, you know, hence it's an adventure story, Uh, but his uncle tries to have him sold into slavery, and I'm giving so much away, I'm just giving so, I'm, you know, spoiling the plot for you, 
but uh, no, the story the story of uh, kidnapped. It's about a guy who gets kidnapped. Uh, you know, his uncle pays for him to be kidnapped and he's sold into slavery, and that's the end of the story. It's 10 pages long. No, of course, it's an, an adventure novel, so things don't go as planned, and, you know, he, he ends up having a grand adventure, even though he was intended to be sold into slavery. Uh, but in that long route to justice, and I won't give away the end if you, for some reason, are listening to this show and decide to actually take my recommendation and read Kidnapped, I won't ruin it for you. I won't ruin this book that was written in the 1860s for you. Uh, but uh, it, the, that long route to justice is is an interesting one, and I find that it's a recurring theme in just about everything. You know, when justice is carried out too swiftly, even by those who are justified to carry it out, justified in their own... Uh, their own justice, justified injustice. Uh, you know, when it's carried out too swiftly, errors are often made, or you know, there it doesn't tell you the complete picture. So stories like this, where you know, there's a long travel, a literal physical travel, as well as you know, psychological travel to get to that end point of justice and the justice doesn't play out like you want it the uncle doesn't get you know lynched for what he did and he actually makes out better than he probably should have but i like it when that happens in stories i like it when the so-called bad guy doesn't just get his head cut off i enjoy stories that you know i don't know when when the bad guy isn't necessarily forgiven but there is some sort of cloud of forgiveness I don't know I, I the cloud of forgiveness sort of is a cloud I feel like no matter how hard you try no matter how forgiving you are forgiveness still kind of exists in this weird murky misty cloud uh, and uh, it was a good book to read after the last one I read last week been doing a lot of reading. Uh, I read Ice, The Ice Schooner by Michael Moorcock, and it's the first book of Michael Moorcock's I've actually read. I've read some of the older Elric comics. I, I love, I should change my name from Eric to Elric. But in Michael Moorcock's The Ice Schooner, just a brutal fantasy story with, you know, some good little twists, but not try-hard twists. Because that's such a common thing, you know, when, when a twist is just, you know, so overwrought, when someone's just like, it's, it's just like grinding, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's like a soaked rag and you're just twisting it and twisting it, you know, literally twisting it, trying to get everything out of it. That's how stories that just force a twist kind of play out and that's why these these sorts of stories like the ice schooner is definitely an adventure too as you might imagine a book named after an ice schooner but you know it takes place in a in a setting where the world is frozen over and it's truly a bare bones fantasy there's nothing flowery about it it's not it's not your uh it's not what counts as fantasy to most people which is like elves and you know, enchantment and magic and all this stuff. It's a, a very philosophical story for as simple as it is. And 
It's basically a world, you know, where the you know, the earth has been frozen over and everything is made of bone and fur and it's brutal fantasy. That's what I would call it. As I was reading it, I was just like, this is brutal. And it doesn't go too far. It doesn't try to be the most violent story ever. I mean, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of, you know, just true brutality in it. Uh, a lot of harshness, as you can imagine, from a story that takes place in a, in a frozen world. There's not even water. I mean, it's called the ice schooner because all the boats have skis running underneath them that are made of bone, giant, essentially giant skis that have turned all the boats into sleds and they slide around on the ice. Uh, but it's a very spiritual story as well where there's a belief that there is this ice mother, essentially a goddess, and in the end, you know, you all return to the ice mother. And when you die, you return to the ice mother. And, and in the end, the entire world will be ice. Ice is the, the natural state of things. And life is just a small exception to that icy reality. And we will all return to it. And the world will eventually become ice. But there's a parallel with the whole, you know, and this book was written, I believe, in the late 60s and published in the 70s. And it, there's a parallel to the whole global warming thing where they're finding in, in the ice schooner, they're finding that it's starting to warm up. And this is causing people to question this whole idea of the ice mother. And there was once a very firm religious foundation where people worshipped the ice, the ice mother and had very clear values they followed. Uh, very, They were very... Um, dare I say, orthodox in their worship of the Ice Mother and the and what they believed to be right. And, and some of the values that went along with that involved, you know, what we would call traditional morality. And the main guy, I'm not going to explain too much about the plot, uh, but the main guy is very... He's very much a, a traditionalist when it comes to this, you know, religious foundation in this icy world in which they live. And he, he's very dismayed by the theories of the earth warming up. He doesn't believe it. He refuses to believe it. Even though there are signs that the ice is melting in places, he refuses to believe it. And he's very dismayed by, you know, the... Uh, deteriorating foundations of the the worlds of his society's religious and moral values, and he sees those things as parallel. He sees people's immoral behavior as and and their lack of faith as contributing to uh, this this view that the earth is warming up, and to them that's catastrophic. You know, even though it means more life. Even though the earth warming in this case means that there will be more life and you know the world will be more lush, that is not what they want because their entire world is based on survival in this complete, you know, some sort. It's basically like a tundra. I mean, beyond tundra, beyond tundra. And so it's, a lot of it's about, you know, it's a good story in and of itself. All the little ins and outs of the story are great, but the overall theme of his faith is a very strong 
it's a, it, it provides a very strong base to the story that continues until the very end, and I appreciate how it ends. It, it ends in a way that most stories don't, especially stories with an element of romance, which this does have, and that's the funny part about the book. The only part that made me laugh is the way that a certain romance in the story is depicted, because it's, it's given such little flair you know, clearly that wasn't Michael Moorcock's focus, is man and woman romance. So it's just given this bare, even though it's a major part of the story, it's given just only the the bare minimum. Uh, <laughs> it's given only the bare minimum of the writer's attention. And it's not a flowery book in any respect. It truly is a book of ice and bone. And I appreciate the way it ended. And speaking of ice, it was a good contrast to the book I had read just before that, which was Neuromancer. Uh, and it, I can't believe it took me so long to finally read Neuromancer. Being a big fan of the Shadowrun video games and the general lore of Shadowrun in particular. I've never actually played the tabletop RPG uh, but I'm very familiar, beyond the video games, I'm very familiar with all of the lore of Shadowrun. And it's actually the reason why I first even tried using that Steam thing like that I talked about. You know, my favorite video game now isn't a video game. It's looking at video games I'll never play on Steam. That's my favorite video game, is the game where I'm the character and all I do is look at video games. I don't watch videos, I look at stills of them. I talked about that not that long ago. My favorite video game is the one where I just look at pictures of video games I will never play. Uh, but the only reason I ever even found out about Steam, I had never used it before, but a friend told me, oh yeah, there's a new Shadowrun game on this thing called Steam, and it's really fucking good. And being a Shadowrun fanatic growing up, I was like, I gotta play this. So I played Shadowrun Returns, and it's great. It was very uh, linear a very straightforward story, you know, you're just kind of a click and point and you, you get through the game. But it was a great story, they fleshed out the world extremely well. It wasn't just some nostalgia trip, it wasn't just some, it, it was a little bit of a fan service maybe, but fortunately the world of Shadowrun uh, is so, it, just so well done, the world, like that whole, the lore is is so... There's just so much there that you could make a new Shadowrun game and it's not just going to be, you know, a masturbation exercise for people who grew up playing the Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis game or, you know, for that matter, played the tabletop game. And, uh, you know, that said, for someone who is as familiar and in love with, in many ways, the lore of Shadowrun, uh, I'm a little bit ashamed that I hadn't read Neuromancer until two weeks ago because Neuromancer provided a lot of the foundation. I mean, granted, there are other cyberpunk influences. All of those things kind of bleed into one another, but Neuromancer provided a lot of the foundation despite being a separate story. I want to make that clear. It's not like Shadowrun is an adaptation of Neuromancer. Uh, Neuromancer is its own little world. And William Gibson... As someone I hadn't really thought much about, you know, I knew he was the author of Neuromancer, but I hadn't really looked into him, and he's associated with the whole counterculture 
60s movement. He, uh, you know, fled to Canada to avoid the draft, and he gets called a draft dodger. But as he himself said, well, I was never actually drafted, so you can't really call me a draft dodger, but I did go to Canada to get away from the draft. I just never got drafted. Uh, but that kind of plays into the what I'm about to say, which is just that the whole like 60s counterculture thing, there's something about it that always rubs me the wrong way, especially when someone gets associated with it, even if it's a completely valid association. Uh, even if it's totally a valid association, I still get rubbed the wrong way. And it makes me think of R. Crumb a little bit. Because R. Crumb's obviously associated with the you know 60s San Francisco psychedelic, all this and all that. But then you look at R. Crumb and his values, and even though he was a drug user, even though he's a, a weird pervert, he's an artist. He has a very you know traditional bend to him, and he's actually you know as a personality quite conservative. And so it's funny that he gets thought of as like, oh, this hippie artist, this hippie artist, Ah Crumb. He just drew butts and, you know, and psychedelic, uh, you know, it's it's just funny to me that he gets associated with that because there's this broad brush that gets painted and it's, you know, taken in by my generation. And I don't know about younger generations, but I know with my generation, you know, there's this pedestal that the 60s have been placed on, the late 1960s, like leading up to that 1969 end cap of the decade and, you know, in, into the 1970s where it's just everything from that era is placed on this pedestal. The civil rights movement, the music, the art, the ideas, and anybody who was alive then, you know, anybody who, ali- who was alive then was cool. Oh, oh, the 1960s when everybody was cool, when everybody was a cool hippie, when everybody was a cool beatnik, counterculture hippie, rock and roll, you know, it's just this, this very broad brush gets painted, and there's a reason for that, you know, I mean, but things weren't as congealed as we think they are, and there was a lot more independence within that world than I think pop culture gives gives proper credit to. And R. Crumb is an example of that because, you know, he really wasn't, as much as he did what he had to do, you know, because so much of it was kind of survival. It was almost like this cultural sur- survival. And I feel like a lot of people ended up peripherally part of the the more well-known aspects of that movement just out of pure survival. It was just sort of like, oh, well, I'm trying to do this thing, and the only platform for it is connected to these other things and in retrospect we've kind of given it this revisionist view where it's like everything that was just everyone that was in this you know the operating in this fairly broad spectrum they were all on the same page they all believed the same things they thought the same things and they were just walking hand in hand they were all at Woodstock together they were all at Woodstock Everybody, everybody who was part of the counterculture movement was together, arm in arm at Woodstock, having an orgy on LSD, listening to Janis Joplin. They were all doing it. They were all together. And it's just not the reality. And I I am going to bring up William Gibson, the whole reason I'm talking about this, because he gets associated with that. And, you know, probably rightly so. I mean, he was participating in the culture of the time. 
and I don't know that he would even distance himself from that. From from what I've read, he hasn't distanced himself from that, although he did say something where he was like, you know, I was just looking to have sex with hippie girls and, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And you'll see people say that, and that's kind of our crumb as well, where it's just kind of like, I just, I like the fact that, oh, free love meant that I could get laid and do drugs. And there was some sort of audience through these, you know, comics, you know, for my for my work. And I feel like William Gibson, even though he didn't start getting published until later, I believe in, it wasn't until... I mean, Neuromancers from the early 80s, and I believe it was published in 84, written in the early 80s, so obviously he wasn't writing this stuff at the time in the 1960s, early 70s. Uh, but I feel like it's another example of that, just where it's not entirely fair to say, oh, he's from the 1960s counterculture movement, blah, 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 he's all... And just a term like counterculture, it has about as much meaning as something like alternative in the 90s, I'm trying to think of what people are using right now that is a similarly useless, broad brush term. And there are, you can find them all throughout history. I mean, all throughout history, we any kind of movement. Anytime you hear that something was a movement, I think you should immediately question it. And I think you should immediately assume that it has some sort of revisionist slant to it at best. So I, I don't like the British, and I don't like the 60s counterculture movement. No, no. Especially where they cross over. God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Neuromancer, just to get back to the actual book itself, like I, I think, I don't know that I've ever read a book that is as, I don't know, I, I mean, it, it, there's just... It, his manner of writing, his manner of description, I've never come across it before. And stories like Shadowrun definitely lifted his style a little bit. Uh, but it's just the way that he is able to describe these technological landscapes that had previously never been written about are just incredible. And you can pick up on an, a, a psychedelic influence, an LSD influence, although I don't want to assume that. I mean, when I was reading it, I did did cross my mind where I was like, this guy, he's definitely taken a bunch of LSD. But I, you know, I try to shy away from the whole psychedelic thing. I don't like that as a topic, especially the more that I've started talking about spirituality on here. I want to make it clear that I don't have much of an interest in psychedelics. Sure, I've taken them. Sure, I've had interesting and at times profound experiences when I was younger taking them, not really knowing what I was looking for, especially. Because in the last few years, I mean, the, the psychedelics or drugs in general are, are not a part of my life. Uh, but, you know, I like to get away from that because it almost plays into what I'm talking about when people like look back at the 60s and they're just like, oh, man, he must have been on a lot of acid. <laughs> oh, man, like when they when they made that music, man, I bet they were just like on a bunch of acid. You know, I hate it when people talk like that. So I I don't want to be that person who's like reading Neuromancer and like, oh man, this guy, he must have taken a bunch of acid. He must have, dude, I bet he like hung out with Pink Floyd and like, they I bet they like hung out and took acid and talked about stuff, man. Because that's how I end up feeling whenever I go there. So I try to like veer away from any kind of thought of psychedelics. But I, it did cross my mind that, uh, especially because, you know, Gibson, he had to have been 
he had to have been somewhat up to date on where technology was at. Either that or he was capable of some sort of remote viewing. But in order to write Neuromancer, I feel like he had to have at least done a little more than surface-level research into the direction that science and technology were headed. And the book, it deals with the concept of the Matrix, and not the Matrix as we know it from the movie, but the Matrix is sort of this interactive database you can go into uh, in order to manipulate and interact with data. And uh, there's a, a parallel here with the ice schooner because in Neuromancer, data is protected by the security called ice. And it's, it's sort of a digital version of what you know we know as ice that surrounds the data and you know, because the book is, you know, a cyberpunk sci-fi book, of course, the main character goes into this matrix and has to dismantle the ice in order to access the data and do this and that. And it's too, almost too much to get into. Uh, and, you know, the way that William Gibson's writing describes all of these things is just, you have to get used to it. And fortunately, I was familiar enough with that style, thanks to Shadowrun and other things, thanks to just the fact that, you know, books like Neuromancer have, have influenced other things that I'm familiar with, and that style and that tone was already familiar to me. But still, you sometimes have to reread paragraphs multiple times, especially when he's describing these technological cyber landscapes. And this is before the internet, and that's what I mean where he you know, had to have been pretty up to date on what was going on and where the wind was blowing on a cultural and societal level because, you know, it does play into ideas like the internet and everything else that has come to encompass our modern society. And, uh, but I, I did appreciate that, you know, it deals with, even though ice is just a small little element of the story, that they interact with briefly and have to contend with briefly whenever it's mentioned. I did like that I went from one book that dealt with this, you know, technological ice, this security, this digital ice that encompasses data to this book that I started reading immediately after that's about an entire world just surrounded by ice and the ice is slowly melting and a fun little parallel, digital ice and real ice and a world of ice. Uh, but Neuromancer, you know, just, it's, I highly recommend it. It's, it's not gonna, it's, it's certainly not a utopian novel, but I, <laughs> but I hesitate to call it dystopian. I'm not a fan of dystopian stories, and someone might read a book like Neuromancer, this very dark, twisted world, this futuristic world where corporate institutions rule where, again, justice takes a very long route and often never gets there. And think of it as dystopian, because there are a lot of dystopian elements. But I'm not a fan of dystopian themes in and of themselves, and I don't necessarily read something like Neuromancer and think, oh, this is a dystopian world. Because there's a lot that's cool about it. There's a grit to it. There's there's a scum to it. There's a, a futuristic scum to a story like this in pretty much every aspect of it. Pretty much every aspect of a story like Neuromancer is covered in this futuristic grime. 
that is both organic and inorganic at the same time fused together. You know, there's a little bit of that in in the story. There's some organic and inorganic fusion. But there is this grime over everything, and it is a corrupt and dark world that this takes place in, but I don't like to think of it as dystopian. And that's become a whole genre unto itself, dystopian sci-fi. And I'm not a huge sci-fi fan. British (laughs) sci-fi. British 60s counterculture sci-fi. Fuck it. Fuck that, man. I'm all about the Ice Mother. I have faith in the Ice Mother, and I feel that 1960s counterculture British sci-fi is ruining, it's corrupting our morality and getting people further and further away from the cold glory that is the Ice Mother. But yeah, I don't like to think of, uh, I don't even like to think of Neuromancer as sci-fi, even though it is absolutely sci-fi. It is the very definition of sci-fi and unique sci-fi, especially for the time in which it came out. And, you know, it may seem less unique when compared to all of the things that have come after it. And I should say, too, I mentioned that the, the, the cyber interface that they go into, which has a very almost, there's, there's an element of meditation to it. Uh, there, there is an element of there is something almost meditative about this guy who sits down at a device and then he enters this other plane of reality where things are simplified yet it's it's a very you know complicated complex grid you know that he's entered but there's something simple and he feels himself when he enters this matrix so it's interesting with that in mind uh, but The Matrix, it really has nothing to do with the movie The Matrix, which I wasn't really a fan of. I, I saw it, and I thought it was a good story. I saw it, and I haven't seen it for many, many years. But it came out when I was in junior high, and it was obviously a big deal. And it wasn't just me trying to be, like, cooler than everybody by being like, I don't care about The Matrix. It just never really got me. There's something like, even though it has its own dark grit, You know, The Matrix is a movie with a lot of that futuristic grime, a different sort of futuristic grime. Uh, There's just something kind of weirdly shiny in a way I don't like. I mean, I I never liked the leather trench coat thing, even though that, even though Shadowrun very much has that. I I feel like the whole cyberpunk trench coat thing is actually cool. Uh But uh, The Matrix, The Matrix is just like a little too Columbine or something for me. There's just this like shiny, like shiny trench coat and sunglasses, and and that's like the most obvious feature of of the movie is just Keanu Reeves' outfit. And so I don't mean to focus too much on that, but I feel like that represents everything that kind of turns me off about the Matrix. And it's a great story. I'm not sitting here saying like the Matrix sucks. The Matrix reminds me of a a British counterculture sci-fi adventure. You know, I'm not even saying that. Uh, there's just something that never it never hooked me. It never got me, and some of it might be the production quality. Because I mean, I I wouldn't say I love Blade Runner. I'm not some Blade Runner fanatic, but it's really fucking good, you know. And there's a reason why people put that movie up where they do. 
even though I'm not, like I said, I'm not a fanatic. I would never be like, Blade Runner's my favorite movie. Uh, I should rewatch it. It's been a while since I've actually seen Blade Runner. Uh, but I'm, Blade Runner is great. Uh, but at the same time, like it, it captures that that feeling perfectly. Whereas The Matrix, maybe it's just the time in which it was made. It could be anything. It could be everything. It could be anything and everything. But there's the, the entire picture of The Matrix, literally the picture. Oh, you see that picture? The Matrix, uh, but the entire picture, just something turns me off, it just, or at least doesn't allow me to really get into it. And it has nothing to do with the story, it has nothing to do with anything in particular about it, it's just the overall aesthetic is something I don't like. And it makes me think too of bands, you know, when metal bands tried to transition into this sort of like futuristic industrial style and they started dressing like that. You know, where it's like you think about a band like Emperor and it's like when they transitioned from their early phase into wearing those leather trench coats and sunglasses and looking like Matrix characters. And that's even a pretty conservative example because you had other bands who started like looking like these weird, grotesque, like shoulder pad and makeup and goggle sort of characters. And all that stuff makes me think of the Matrix, even though the Matrix isn't that overstated. I mean, it's not like it's that over the top. There's just something about it. It's, you know, it's like the aspects of, it's like things that were influenced by Geiger, Giger, however the fuck you want to say his name. Someone will always correct me. Uh, Crowley Crowley, Geiger, Giger. It's my poem. Pronouncing names the, the way that people don't want you to pronounce them. But it's like this post-Geiger sort of aesthetic as well that I don't like. And growing up, I took Geiger for granted, where it was on album covers. I mean, you know, Danzig. It was was something that was was readily available. I mean, I was like a little kid. I mean, Alien, the Aliens movie, the Alien movies had been out, you know, forever. And I grew up watching those. And so I, I definitely took the Geiger aesthetic, for example. And a few years ago, a friend of mine was showing me some... Geiger artwork, and I was, you know, some early stuff in particular, and it gave me a good foundation for his whole body of work, and I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan, but it gave me a newfound appreciation for sure, Uh, but this whole post-Geiger aesthetic that you see in sci-fi just doesn't do it for me, and it's not even like The Matrix really goes for that, but it's just there, it's just something that's there, like I said, there's this shininess, this black leather shininess, these cables coming out of things. And it's weird because that stuff is there and things I like too, like weird cables. You know, I've talked at length on here about, you know, how much I love a good bad guy hideout and those sorts of, uh, you know, futuristic, grimy, sci-fi, urban, you know, landscapes, if you want to even call them landscapes, those datascapes, those futurescapes, I I like movies that have a good future scape, uh, but those are great for bad guy hideouts. I mean, there are some really grimy uh, bad guy hideouts in sci-fi movies that I just love. You know, Blade Runner has those. Shadowrun is just... What I love about Shadowrun is it's basically one giant bad guy hideout, futuristic bad guy hideout, but done perfectly. It's basically just that. I think that's what I like about it more than anything. It's just one giant bad guy hideout. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's just, I don't know what it is. But Neuromancer is very pure. 
you know, it, it seemed to have come out of nowhere. And I know William Gibson said that as he was writing the book, Blade Runner came out and he almost scrapped the thing. He was like, nobody's going to like this. People are going to think I ripped this off. And that must be such a dreadful feeling to be working on something truly innovative and truly as creative as Neuromancer and to have a movie come out that captures that aesthetic, especially visually in, a, in movie format. And he says that he rewrote, I think he said he was like a third of the way through the book or something. He was, he was, you know, well into the process of writing it when Blade Runner came out and it forced him to rewrite the opening and probably for the better. Cause you know, in reading that book, you know, I didn't think, oh, that the first third of the books looks like it was rewritten over and over again and it sucks. No, it was great. I mean, the first third of the book hooked me in. As someone who already had high expectations, and I try to go into things with relatively low expectations, uh, but Neuromancer was something that I had very high expectations for, and it absolutely exceeded them, it completely exceeded them, and opened my brain up to a whole new world of imagination. Uh, it really did, though. It, it just his manner of writing, it was just, I think it was unprecedented, you know, obviously science fiction had been around for a long time prior to Neuromancer, but I feel like it did completely reprogram. Reprogram? Like in The Matrix? Uh, no, but I feel like it did completely re... Like, oh, like when you take a psychedelic at Woodstock, it reprogrammed you? No, no, it did something. I think it did reprogram what science fiction is. And I'm curious to read other the other foundations of the cyberpunk genre, and I don't like to use that term. You know, I think because of steampunk and things like that, it, it's kind of put a sour taste in my mouth. Cyberpunk. Anything with punk at the end. I think that, that puts a sour taste in my mouth. It makes me think of counterculture, you know, and all that shit. It's like, oh, counterpunk? Woodstock punk? I think anytime you, something ends in punk, especially, you know, this stuff that has nothing to do with music or anything else, it's just... Puts a sour, sour. It puts a sour taste in my mouth and a sour look on my face. Uh, but cyberpunk, it is its own entity, and I, I'm always drawn to that aesthetic. No matter how much it gets overplayed and played out, I feel like I always have a spot in my heart for cyberpunk. And reading Neuromancer definitely ignited that. It lit that little spot in my heart on fire because that little spot in my heart is is a, a little fireplace. It's a little uh, campfire and. So it can be ignited, and it's always that same little place, dug out. Dug out like a campfire pit. Uh, and it does make me curious to check out some of the other foundations of cyberpunk, some of the earlier novels and everything. I know there are other authors, other books, but it would be difficult for them to live up to Neuromancer because it exceeded any expectation I ever could have had for it. And I have a couple of Shadowrun novels. I have a couple of the novelizations. And they look really bad. I haven't read them yet. Uh, and I'm kind of scared to read them now after having read Neuromancer. Especially because these aren't even the earliest, you know, they aren't even like the earlier Shadowrun novelizations. They're just ones that were made later on. Probably in the, I don't know, 90s, I would guess. Late 80s or 90s, I'd have to check. Uh, but they're, they're about like, I don't even know. I don't even need to describe the covers. 
one of them is like a called the Striper Assassin, and it has some you know weird inhuman woman with a sword and a gun in her hand. And that's the thing about Shadowrun is what it did basically is it took something like Neuromancer, it took the foundations that were established by Neuromancer and put it in a fantasy setting. You know, it kind of Dungeons and Dragons ified it where which you know, it literally did that because you know Shadowrun is a a, a tabletop RPG like Dungeons and Dragons. So they basically took the format and style of something like Neuromancer and they added orcs and dwarves and elves and magic. Because none of that appears in Neuromancer. I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if it would or wouldn't, but it doesn't have any of that. It has a lot of elements that you find later in Shadowrun. And I hate to keep making this comparison. It, it reminded me of Shadowrun. It reminded me of Shadowrun. You know, but it's like. It obviously provided the blueprint, and Shadowrun added in, you know, traditional fantasy elements, but in a futuristic setting, which I imagine at that time was very innovative. Now we kind of take that for granted, uh, in the same way that I took Geiger for granted as a kid, and was just like, oh yeah, the shiny alien, black leather, future, you know, hell texture guy. You know, you don't even realize that's an artist. You know, when you're growing up, when you're like, you know, in elementary school and you just see that shit, when you go to like the record store and you see album covers and you see comic books and you see all these things that use, if not actual Geiger artwork, but you see that they, uh, Geiger, Geiger, if you see that they even just borrow from that aesthetic, you don't even really think of that as coming from one guy. And I think that's a great example of taking something for granted. Because we use taking something for granted as this horrible thing. Like, if you take something for granted, you're just, you're ungrateful. You're, uh, you're entitled and ungrateful, taking it for granted. But there's a much simpler, more innocent way that we take things for granted. And it's just through ignorance, really. It's just like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that some guy just did that. Some guy came up with that aesthetic. And it just became the industry standard. It became the industry standard. And a lot of things do that, though. A lot of things operate that way. And just to go back to the 60s counterculture thing, it's like I think even though it's been put on this pedestal, that's kind of made me resent it. And I've resented the way that everything has kind of been forced in under that umbrella. Everything that was relevant during that era and everything that hit a certain tone or had a certain connection, gets painted with the same broad brush. I also realize that I take I take that for granted. You know, I take that era for granted. And, you know, it was harder for people to make connections. It was harder for people to do things outside the norm. And that's one reason why we have this illusion that everything was just congealed together. It's because people were doing what they could with who they knew and the resources that were available to them. And in retrospect, that makes the 1960s seem like it was more cohesive than it was. Uh, and, you know, I take for granted how easy it is for me to do the things I want to do, you know, in terms of expression, in terms of interests and hobbies. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what it was like to be there, you know, at the first wave of the so-called counterculture movement 
and you know the actual effort that people had to put in the connections people had to make and you know i think i do take that for granted and uh it's strange to live in the time of the internet though i mean timothy leary famously talked about find the others you must find the others and that's sort of what people were doing in his era i mean it was exactly what people are doing when i'm talking about people making connections with what with the resources that were available to them with the limited resources available and that's what people were doing in the 60s, you know, it seems. They were finding the others. And that didn't necessarily mean, and often it didn't, that the others were all the same. You know, we have all these clear-cut identities. I mean, beyond just a term like sci-fi, we have these hyper-specific terms. Dystopian cyberpunk, you know, we get so specific and we get that specific with our identities as well. And, you know... When the, these counterculture movements were beginning to develop and congeal somewhat in the 60s, you know, there wasn't a prepackaged identity for these people to fall into. And uh, when Timothy Leary or people from that generation got into this idea of finding the others, you know, you had to, I think you had to appreciate your commonality more even where it differed, if that makes sense. You had to appreciate the commonality you had with people as different as that commonality could be. Because the point was is that you guys were thinking differently than most of the people around you, than most of the people that you experienced in your day-to-day -day life, than you experienced growing up. And Timothy Leary was very excited. And I'm not a big Timothy Leary fan. I didn't even pay any attention to him. Like a year ago, I went on a little phase of listening to some uh, old interviews and you know talks that he did and I had never paid attention to him growing up I completely bypassed all of that and I'm not saying that with any like excessive pride oh I bypassed Timothy Leary in my teens and 20s I, I bypassed Timothy Leary and but I mean I did because that kind of thing just it rubbed me the wrong way it seemed too easy it seemed you know I took it for granted and I having listened to some Timothy Leary stuff I didn't love it it was interesting, you know, I could appreciate it for what it was, and maybe for what it is, maybe a little bit. I do like Robert Anton Wilson, I do like a lot of things that were part of that same orbit. Some of the others that Timothy Leary found and that found him, I appreciate them, I appreciate some Terrence McKenna and things like that, but it's not my thing, it never was, and it certainly isn't now. But I can appreciate what those guys said, some of their observations, some of their predictions, some of their uh, reflections on the past, for that matter, and the nature of humanity. Uh, but that idea of finding the others, and, uh, you know, I feel like, and well, Timothy Leary talked about, because he was a, a big proponent of the internet, when the internet became a an idea in people's heads when, when people first became aware of this new thing and the potential connections it provided. Timothy Leary was all about it and heavily involved. And coinc coincidentally, he was involved with the creation of a Neuromancer video game that came out in the 80s. Timothy Leary was involved in the production of it somehow. I'm not sure exactly how, uh, but he was involved, which is interesting. Uh, it just all comes back to to that. Everything everything's connected. Um, but uh, he talked about you know find the, how the internet was going to provide this great foundation for finding the others, for finding the people like you, or at least finding other people who may not be like you, but you can nonetheless connect with. They are other than you, but you together make the others. 
And that might be a good way of, of thinking of the counterculture movement, uh, a nice positive spin, is that a lot of those people were other than each other. They weren't all of the same hippie thing. They, weren't, they didn't all have the same beliefs and values, but individually they were all others, and together they formed uh, a third entity of others, in the same way that two people who form a relationship create a third entity. Uh, like almost create a third person who exists from the shared experience and consciousness of those two people. It's the same thing sort of with this idea of the others, where you know, even though you are all individuals and you might not agree or you might not have the same foundation, you might not have the same values even, together you can form some sort of larger entity of others in which you retain your individual identity uh, but still come together, still find some commonality. And if future generation, if you're important enough for future generations to like paint you with one broad brush, I guess there are worse tragedies that could happen to a person, you know? <laughs> future generations just don't, under if, don't understand me. Future generations remember me, but they don't understand me. Talk about taking something for granted. <laughs> Uh, but you know, Timothy Leary was like, oh, the internet's going to be a, a great way for people to connect, for the others to find each other. And I think it, it, it did and does that. I think it, especially in the days of message boards and the simpler days, the days of home pages and bulletin boards, I think the internet did provide that. But it was still a hostile place. You know, there was a lot of, there's always been fighting, there's always been cruelty, there's always been meanness on the internet. And that's the interesting thing that it's provided. Because it's made it easier to find the others, I think it's also made it easier to take the others for granted. And it's made it easier to see the differences. You know, whereas, you know, in the days of writing letters and, you know, posting, you know, a personal ad in the back of a fanzine, and, you know, how it's like my friend Robert said, I use this example a lot, but he, he talked about he's like, I remember in the 90s when you'd chase someone, you know, three blocks down the street just because they walked by you wearing a Satyricon shirt. And, you know, nowadays it's like someone walks by you in like the same band in your favorite band shirt and you're like, they're probably not a real fan. Well, I don't, I don't like their haircut. You know, whereas there was a point in time where if someone even, like, had a band shirt of some band you hated, but they were close enough to, like, the genre you liked and you didn't know anybody else who liked it, you would become friends with them. Like, you were the only kids in your high school who liked metal, and you might not have agreed on which bands were good, but it was like you were the only people who liked metal. Uh, in the same way that that, at one point in time, would bring you together, I think that now in the days when... We have a little bit too much access to the others. It's very easy for us to attack those others or, or focus on the differences between them. And I'm not trying to like pitch some like, why can't we all just get along type line? But it's something to be aware of. It's something to remind yourself of. And that's the thing about this internet, for example, that Timothy Leary was so excited about. This internet that Timothy Leary was so excited about. Have you heard of the internet? It was something that Timothy Leary was very excited about. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it did provide us with greater access to the others. And it's very easy to focus on the fact that people do fight so much and people do resent each other so much. 
but it also has brought people together a lot. And I don't necessarily like the current manifestation of the internet. It's a little too streamlined. It's a little too inorganic for me. Whereas the days, you know, and it's not just nostalgia making me say this. Nostalgia. It's the, the entity of nostalgia. It's like a god. The god of nostalgia has a gun to my head and is making me say this. Um, I just want to pref- give this disclaimer. I'm being forced to do this. I'm being forced to do this by the god of nostalgia. But really, you know, those days of like organic, ugly homepages of, you know, just crude bulletin boards, no algorithms, no sorting mechanism, just pure chronological posts, all that. You know, even though people did fight a lot, people have always used the internet as an opportunity to argue and fight. Uh, I, I do think it made it a little easier to to appreciate the others that you found. And I still have relationships with people, friendships with people who I met back in those sorts of days. Those sorts of days. And I appreciate that they're still around. There's people I've never met who I consider dear friends who have influenced my life, who I met in those days, and I didn't think of it as finding the others because they weren't necessarily like me. They weren't necessarily me. They weren't, you know, some exact mirror image of myself, but there was some sort of kinship to be found there. And so in being these individual others, I do feel like Timothy Leary was right, that the internet did provide a great way of finding that, and maybe it still does. I don't know. I, I I don't really, it doesn't really happen as much anymore. I feel like, like I said, things have become a little more inorganic. The internet has become a way to stay in touch with people from your entire personal life. It's like everybody you've ever went to high school with, all of this, you know, I don't know. It's it's become, and you'd think that that would make it more organic, but in a way that's made it less organic. It's kind of reduced the otherness of it. But I think it's easy to focus, it's easy to let that negativity bias consume your focus, and it's very easy to be like, oh, well, the internet now is just people hating each other, trying to deplatform each other, trying to, you know, convince each other that they're right and you're wrong, and this politician this, and this politician that. And that is a lot of it, unfortunately. No matter how much of a positive spin you want to put on the internet today, A lot of it has become just this fight between you and the people you know, or just even if it's not a fight, there's this resentment, which to me is a form of slow burning fight. You know, resentment is is a very quiet, long lasting fight, in my opinion. That's what resentment is. And I feel like it is, you know, the internet has become a vessel for that, a vessel for resentment. It should, it should be more like an ice schooner. It should, you know, have uh, bone skis on the bottom of it, and and it should uh, scoot around on ice. The internet should be more like an ice schooner. It should be, though. It should be. It should be, uh, you know, made of bone, and it should scoot around on ice. Both forms of ice. Both the neuromancer ice, which is the, you know, technological security mechanism that surrounds data. And it should also skate around on some sort of real ice, some something like real ice. Because we all should worship the ice mother. 
you know, the ice schooner had it right. And it doesn't matter what you call her. It doesn't matter if you call her a her. I feel like that idea of the ice mother is important. And I recommend all these books <laughs> that this episode was supposedly about. I recommend Kidnapped for just a pure classic. I mean, it was written in, I believe, the 1860s. Uh, so, you know, Kidnapped, I, I highly recommend that for a, a good dose of historical fiction uh, that will bring a tear to your eye. It brought a tear to my eye. You know, it, it hit me. Uh, the only book I can remember bringing a tear to my eye, maybe there have been more that I just can't remember, but the Leuven Brothers book written by Charlie Leuven and uh, Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, but Kidnapped, yeah, it's a story of, you know, the long route to justice and the adventure along the way. And, cur you know, naturally courage and bravery are, are a huge part of that. And the ice schooner parallels that very well in a more mystical way. It's more of a mystical but bare bones and brutal adventure story with a strong undercurrent of faith. And it's a good story, too, because as I said, and I didn't really get into it that much because I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, the ice schooner also, you know, it's it's a good parallel to the whole global warming discussion that's going on right now. Uh, it's actually a theme of the book. Uh, and it's just that that's a world covered in ice that's slowly melting, opposed to a world that's not covered in ice, that's slowly burning, the one in which we live. It's, and according to some people, it's quickly burning. But yeah, the ice schooner, it's very relevant, and it's a good complement to a book like Kidnapped. Because they both have boats. They both got ships. Uh, and, but it's really a story of faith, which I didn't expect. I didn't expect it, it to be a story of faith. And third, you know, Neuromancer, which is a, a very different form of adventure. It is more modern, you know, even though it's a, a, it takes place in a distant future that's different than the one in which we live, there are parallels too that William Gibson didn't even realize were going to come about. Because he's a clairvoyant. Because he took so much acid in the 60s, man. He took so much hippie acid in the 60s. He just knew what was going to happen. No, but there are parallels in that as well, even though it is kind of a, a more far-fetched sci-fi story. And so those three books, I felt like having read them all in the last two weeks, they all complemented each other really well. And they all inspired me. Not inspired me creatively, but just inspired me to think. They lit my adventure fuse. They encouraged me to pursue adventure whenever and wherever, and that can be at home. You can find adventure at home if you really want to. If you have faith in the Ice Mother. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, I'm rereading the Bible. <laughs> And I won't say too much about that, although in a nice little synchronicity, as I was reading, as I was starting Kidnapped, and the story was getting into the part about uh, the main character, David, being sold into slavery by his uncle, I was reading the story of Joseph in the Bible, which is about his brothers selling him into slavery. And that's a great story of that sort of long route to justice. 
and how justice doesn't always mean the bad guys get got. Sometimes justice means you help the people who sold you into slavery because they're your family. And in Kidnapped, you know, I'm not going to give away the ending because I really do think people should read that, but that long route to justice is something to consider. And the longer the route to justice, it seems, the less likely justice gets overtaken by revenge. And it seems that the longer the route is to justice, the more likely generosity is to come out uh, in unlikely ways. And I'll leave this episode at that. I'll leave it at that. The long route to justice often includes more generosity than you would ever expect to come out of a situation that involved an initial injustice. And it also cools down the heated fires of revenge. So read some books, read these ones, whatever, do what you want. Uh, The Long Route to Justice. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free, so take